Good evening, and welcome back to our series of studies through the book of Esther. Tonight, we will be studying chapter 1, verses 10 through 15. But first, let's recap what we studied last time through a detailed look at two feasts, or parties, really, King Ahasuerus hosted, we began to learn what kind of man this king really was. He was a man who had immense wealth, unlimited power, and unrivaled self-worth. He had under his control noblemen, military leaders, winemakers, stonemasons, interior decorators, furniture craftsmen, etc., etc., etc. He also had the wealth of the entire Persian Empire at his disposal, and he thought nothing of lavishly flaunting it in front of all those under his dominion, under his power, under his control. We also learned what kind of man the king wasn't. He lacked something very important for a man in his position. King Ahasuerus lacked an acknowledgement of God, an acknowledgement of God that Paul describes very clearly in the book of Romans. The king clearly attached much more value to himself than what was merited, certainly more than the Lord did. Now, in tonight's study, we will continue learning the true character of King Ahasuerus through the author's introduction of Queen Vashti. We will see how the Lord will use the king's narcissism and the queen's disobedience to open the door for Esther to enter the story. So let's read together tonight's passage, Esther chapter 1, verses 10 through 15. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abigtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Mirs, Marcina, and Mimukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. And now this is what he said to these men, or asked of these men. According to the law, 
What is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Amen. Okay, let's, <clears throat> let's begin and take a close look at verses 10 and 11. Let me just reread those verses. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abiktha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown, in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. Now we're told in the very beginning of verse 10 here that the events of this passage took place on the seventh day. This was the final day, that is, the culmination of the seven-day feast that began back in verse 5. Now, presumably, the king had been indulging, and more likely it was overindulging, in consuming much wine over the entire seven days. Now, this being the final day would have been no different. The text states explicitly that the king's heart was merry with wine. Now, the English phrasing of this term, merry, sounds very joyful and lighthearted. I mean, being merry means to be cheerful, joyful, uninhibited, and carefree. This is, in and of itself, it's not an evil or a sinful thing to be merry. But the text says that the king was merry with wine. And this carries the clear implication that the king was intoxicated. He was drunk. And let's remember what Paul the Apostle says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, about being drunk with wine. He says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But, or instead, be filled with the Spirit. That is, the Holy Spirit of God. So being merry with wine means having a heart and a mind that is intoxicated or heavily influenced by the wine. Now I want to real quickly take a look at two other examples in Scripture of the use of this phrase, just to make the point. You don't need to turn there. Let me just read these two, uh, two verses to you. The first one is in 1 Samuel 25, it's verse 36. And it reads, And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. 
That is the next day. Okay, now the second verse is from 2 Samuel. It's in chapter 13, and it's verse 28. And this is what it reads. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. And when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Now, what we see, without taking the time to fully develop the context of each of these verses, is that in both of these examples, the one who was merry with wine was not in complete control of his faculties. His judgment was impaired. He was unable to make wise, responsible decisions. That's the point to which I want to draw to your attention. Now, this was clearly the state of King Ahasuerus when he issued his command to Queen Vashti. In the king's intoxicated state, he sends for his queen to be brought in to the presence of all of his guests. Now, there are several details in the king's command that I want to draw to your attention. The first being the seven eunuchs. Now, first of all, eunuchs were men who had had their reproductive organs removed. And this was done in those days primarily for the purpose of ensuring trustworthiness when overseeing the king's harem. Now, the text indicates that the king had seven eunuchs as servants in his presence at all times. This is extravagant in and of itself. Now, I can see at least two possible reasons that the king would have such a relatively large number of personal assistants. I mean, it is extravagant to have seven. Personally, I think it's somewhat extravagant to have one personal assistant, someone who follows you around all day, simply doing or, you know, who's there for the purpose of doing whatever it is that you ask him to do. Go get this, go get that. He's your personal assistant. But the king didn't have one. He had seven. So, uh, like I said, I think I can see at least two possible reasons. Number one, think for show, so that everyone in the king's presence would have an impression that the king is important. Look how important I am. I have seven personal assistants around me at all times. So, first possible reason, I think for show. Second, I think that, um, that he would have these, these assistants there uh, so that meeting his needs would never involve delay. 
He would never have to wait. If he had sent one of his servants on an errand, and then he needed something else, he wouldn't have to wait till that servant came back. He would just send a second, and then a third, and then a fourth on down the line. So, like I said, meeting the king's needs would never involve delay. The king is clearly not a patient man. All right, so here the king is going to send a message to his queen, but he doesn't send just one of his servants to issue his command and retrieve the the queen. No, he sends all seven of them. This was most likely another way of displaying to all his guests of the king's greatness, of his power, and of his authority. It could also have been a communication to the queen, emphasizing that the king did not intend to take no for an answer. Now, that's the first detail. The next detail is that she is to come with her royal crown. Now, we're not told why specifically the king emphasized that she was to come with her royal crown. It's the only detail that we're given regarding how she is to appear in front of the king's guests. That is, with her royal crown. I see this as an indication that from the king's perspective, he wanted to display Queen Vashti as one more of his many extravagant possessions. Perhaps as his greatest and most highly prized possession. Her crown, in a sense, being a sign of his ownership of her. He gave her the crown, and as we will see, he can take it away from her too. The next detail that I want to draw to your attention is this. We're then told of his purpose in sending for, and that is to display her beauty. Queen Vashti was a beautiful woman. The text is explicit about this. Now, there is absolutely nothing wrong with a man considering his wife to be beautiful, to see her as the most beautiful woman in the world. But what we're meant to understand here is much more than the king merely seeing her as the most beautiful woman in the world. I mean... If truth be told, there are circumstances in which a husband sees his wife as the most beautiful woman in the world, even though she might not be all that physically attractive, right? But this was not a circumstance of beauty being in the eye of the beholder. No, Queen Vashti was truly and objectively a strikingly beautiful woman. And the king wanted his guests to know of and to see the beauty that she possessed and that he possessed 
as her husband. But understand that his desire was not to make his queen feel beautiful. His desire was not to make his wife feel loved and protected by her husband. The king didn't escort his queen into the presence of his guests, at his side, on his arm, under his protection. No, he sat there drinking his royal wine and sent servants to fetch her and parade her in front of himself and his guests, all in a very intoxicated state. Now, I doubt very seriously that the men who were there would have been looking at her in a healthy, respectable way as the lovely wife of the king. Now, I think that her presence would have most likely prompted leering looks and inappropriate thoughts toward her. So the king's purpose was not to make the queen feel like a treasured and beautiful woman. No, his purpose was to elevate himself once again in the presence of his guests by displaying what was most likely in his mind another one of his many possessions. Now let's move on to to verse 12. Verse 12 says, But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. So, Here's the scene. The king's seven servants arrive at the queen's feast and deliver to her the king's command, which is this. Come at once to the king's feast. Two, come adorned in your royal crown. Three, come prepared to display yourself and entertain my many guests with your physical beauty. Now, come on, what woman would not be overwhelmed with love and affection for her husband and desire to drop whatever she's doing and run to his side? Well, I doubt many would. Certainly Queen Vashti wouldn't because she refuses to go. Now, the text doesn't specify why Queen Vashti refused the the king. We're just told that she refused to come. Now, possibly, maybe she just simply did not want to leave her own feast that she was hosting for all of the women in Susa. Or perhaps, perhaps Queen Vashti was as childish and self-centered and controlling as the king was. We just don't know. We're not given this detail. 
Since we're not given her reason for refusing the king, any speculation is just that, speculation. But it gives us the opportunity to remind ourselves of something that we should always remember. And that is this. God reveals everything in his word that he once revealed. You know, I think about I think about myself in when I when I teach, there are inevitably times afterwards when I'm reflecting on what I have just taught. And I have I I I think of things that you know, maybe an example that I could have used while teaching that would have better emphasized a point that I was making. Or it comes to me a, a, a better, a clearer way I could have explained a particular point. But that's after the fact. But that's me. God is never, ever, ever in that t- type of situation. God revealed in his word exactly what he wanted to reveal, exactly how he wanted to reveal it. It is perfect. Now, here's the thing. We're not always given all of the information we may want in the Bible, but we are always given all the information the Lord wants us to have. Therefore, we're always given all the information that we need. So, the unknown is okay in this situation. It doesn't in any way impede our understanding of the passage. On the contrary, it focuses our attention on what I believe the Lord is emphasizing, and that is the type of man King Ahasuerus was. So in the lack of detail pertaining to why the queen refused, we see an additional detail or element of the king's character exposed. Whatever Queen Vashti's reason for refusing to come was, and we don't know what it is or what it was, okay, but whatever the reason was, It was unimportant to the king. From his perspective, her thoughts, her feelings, her opinions, they carried no value. She has no rights in this relationship. You see, this is an, an expression or example of the king not expressing to his wife what we know as agape love. He was not considering her. He was not placing her before himself. He was not, in this moment, loving his wife the way Christ loves the church. The only thing that mattered to the king was what he wanted. And Queen Vashti refused to give him what he wanted. She refused to obey his command. Now, the remainder of this verse exposes yet another very important aspect of the king's character. 
We're told that he burned with anger when his wife refused his command. When she acted according to her own will and not according to his. Now, we don't know a whole lot about Queen Vashti, but what scripture does tell us about her is that she was beautiful and she was bold. So, right or wrong, and we just simply don't know in an absolute sense if she was right or wrong, but right or wrong, she has acted according to her own will. And King Ahasuerus was not happy about it at all. Now, we will see later in the story that at a critical point, Esther acts according to her own will. What she does is she approaches the king uninvited. Now, this type of approach without an invitation is usually met with execution. But in that situation, the king responds to the then Queen Esther in a very different way from the way he's responding to Queen Vashti right now. And the question that we'll be asking when we get to that part of the story is this. Does the king respond differently to Esther due to something inherent in Esther herself? Or has the king had a dramatic change in character? Is he a new man? Or is it that God has intervened in the circumstances? Well, we will develop that when we get to chapter 5. For now, we see that King Ahasuerus has issued Queen Vashti a command. She's refused, and his anger is now burning within him. Verses 13 and 14. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment. The men next to him being Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Mirs, Marsena, and Mimukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. So, once again, the situation, the circumstance here, is that the king has been humiliated in front of his guests. All the great and all the small of Susa. He's been humiliated because his queen has openly and publicly defied his command. So, at this point, the king's judgment, the king's decision-making, has been seriously compromised. By, in, 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 in several ways. First, by the embarrassment of her disobedience. It must have been humiliating for her. 
a very, very awkward moment. I mean, try to imagine that. He sends his seven servants to retrieve her, and they come back without her and have to report back to him in front of everyone. Uh, King, uh, yeah, Queen Vashti said um, uh, no. So he's humiliated by her disobedience. He's dealing with his own burning anger, burning rage within him. And then let's not forget the compounded effect of seven straight days of consuming royal wine. So like I said, at this point, his judgment, his decision-making, seriously compromised. So the wisest thing for King Ahasuerus to do at this point would be to stop, take a step back, calm down, and gather his wits. Not to mention, how about stop drinking and just give it a little bit of time and let the effects of the alcohol wear off. Then take action or make a decision. But undoubtedly, driven by pride, driven by humiliation, and driven by anger and rage, he doesn't do the wise thing. No, instead, he sets out to take immediate action against the queen. The text says that he consults with the wise men who knew the times. Now, these were men who were well-versed, very well-educated in, and regularly studied the law of the Persian Empire. They were men whom the king himself had appointed to interpret the law and the customs of Persia, and then to decide on what we would call lawsuits. Lawsuits that that were important enough, or at least viewed by the king as being important enough, to gain his attention. Okay, These men were the equivalent of our Supreme Court. Now, they were most likely <clears throat> appointed to their positions based on their ability and their willingness to always give the king the answers that he wanted in these situations, not answers based on their knowledge of the law and their commitment to uphold the law. And the the particular seven men listed in the text were most likely seven that the king had chosen, had handpicked to be in his presence, or at very least at his beck and call, for just such situations. They're listed as princes of Persia and Media. This means that they were royal. 
They were royal in some way or to some degree, possibly sons of dignitaries or nobles of Persia and Media. This would certainly give the king a certain amount of leverage with them. After all, disappointing the king or undermining his wishes in any way could mean harm to the well-being of their families. So they would be highly motivated to cooperate and give the king the answers that he sought, that he wanted in any situation. So these were the men with whom the king consulted. And this is what he asked them. Verse 15. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Now, The wording of the king's question is very interesting. To me, it indicates that he's not interested at all in justice. First of all, it's interesting, it's easy to to miss this or to gloss over this, but he's not dealing with the situation on a family or a household level. I mean, this was a This was a a circumstance, a a difficulty, an issue between a husband and a wife, right? But he doesn't deal with it that way. He doesn't pull uh, 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 Queen Vashti aside as his cherished wife and discuss it with her. Ask her, what's the problem? What's the issue? Why wouldn't you come when I asked you to... You know, he doesn't deal with it one-on-one, privately, husband to wife. No, not at all. He immediately escalates the situation to the civil law level. And then notice that he does not ask if the law permits the queen to refuse the command that he issued. He doesn't ask if or what the law says about such situations. See, this says to me that he is certainly not looking for a way to work within the boundaries of the law, but to show Queen Vashti mercy. No, not at all. His question is what I would call a leading question. That is a question that has a clear implication built into it. And this is the implication that I see. The king is saying something is going to be done to Queen Vashti. I'm asking you, meaning his seven, I'm asking you what is to be done to her. You see, the king's single or singular focus in this circumstance is reestablishing his power and his authority his credibility first to the queen. He wants to make it known to her that his word is law and that the only appropriate response to any and every command that she receives from him is 
obedience. Nothing else. Nothing short of obedience. So, first to the queen, secondarily, and this is a this is a close second here, but to his audience. Remember, all of this is taking place in front of all of the great and all of the small in Susa, the capital city. So, he needs to, or he wants to demonstrate to everyone present there that no one, not even the queen, not even his wife, says no to the king. So he asks, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? You see, there's no question as to whether or not something is going to be done to the queen. That, that's a foregone conclusion. Something will be done to her. The only question in the king's mind is what? And this he leaves in the hands of his advisors. Now make no mistake here. The king's deferment of authority to his wise men is not a show of good, healthy accountability. It's not a show of of good, uh, healthy, shared leadership or a government with checks and balances built into its system. No, not, not at all. It was most likely a demonstration of the king's confidence that his appointed yes-men would come up with a solution that would, one, show Queen Vashti the grave mistake that she has made by refusing the king. Two, would save face for the king in front of his guests. And three, that it would at least begin to quench the raging anger that burned inside of him. Now, in our next study, we will see how the princes of Persia answer the king. Before we close tonight, I'd like to give you what what I see as four points of personal or life application that we can take away with us from this passage. Now, what we see mostly are negative examples in this passage. That is, what not to do. The first one is pretty obvious, but very important and uh, well, well worth rehearsing here. And that is to avoid drunkenness. Don't get drunk. Remember the words of the Apostle Paul. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit. So don't get drunk. Two, don't place yourself above others. Instead, serve others and place their good before your own. Our greatest example is the Lord Jesus himself. Remember him as, as described in, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. It says, Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So let's, let's emulate the Lord Jesus, not King Ahasuerus. Third, look for and see the Lord working in all of our life circumstances. Because he is. He's always there. Even when it's not obvious or apparent, he is always there in all of our circumstances. And then finally tonight, consider this. Surround yourself with those who are committed to righteousness, not those who are committed simply to pleasing you to always telling you what you want to hear, always puffing you up. Surround yourself with those committed to righteousness. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so very much for the proclamation of your word tonight. I pray, Father, that we will absorb and that we will embrace all that you have for us in this study. I pray that that we may see you in all of our circumstances and deepen our commitment to live our lives, not according to our own will, but according to yours. Thank you, Father, and amen.